There was a time a, a while back, years ago, when I went to visit some new church members. This was at a church I was at previously and came home with a kitten. And that was a bad decision because, as you may know by now, kittens tend to become cats. And this cat and I were not meant to live together, I, I'm convinced. Uh, this cat, now this was a long time ago, my daughter was around two or three years old, and she wanted to hold the cat, she wanted to play with the cat, she wanted to pet the cat. The cat was not on board with this little girl having any contact with her, and so there were a lot of altercations. My daughter always got the wrong end of those, um, and it, it always puzzled me because the dog was very easy to train. You could, you could teach this dog, okay, you don't lash out at the child. You, can't, you couldn't train this cat. And I kept wanting it to change. I wanted this situation to work out, but the cat never would evolve. It never would grow. It never would learn what was what. And so one day, in, in absolute frustration, I didn't know what else to do. I carried the cat outside, and I threw it onto the roof of our house. <laughs> and I wasn't trying to hurt the cat. I mean, I, I could. there were better ways to do that. But my, my motive was, if I get it up there on the roof, it's going to take it a long time to get down, and that will give me a chance to cool off so I don't do something really bad. And it worked. That was a good plan. The, the problem was the next Sunday when I was uh, shaking hands with people as they were leaving the church and uh, this lady comes up to me and says, hey, I was driving past your house this week and saw you throw your cat on the roof. <laughs> so what's up with that? And, and, and there was nothing I could say. Now, here's where that all ties in. There are probably people in your life who you really wish would change who you really are having a hard time with. You might be sitting right next to them right now. Don't look. Don't make it awkward. <laughs> and, and if you choose to throw them on the roof of your house, I won't judge you. Obviously, I can't. But make sure you do it when no one's looking. But the helpful thing to realize is that there's somebody, maybe in this room, maybe somewhere else, there are people in this room, in this, in this world, who wish you would change, who wish you would grow, who wish you would move past some of the things that are, that are hurting them, that are driving them crazy, that are getting in the way of their joy. Even more importantly, there's a God in heaven who loves you just the way you are, and He loves you enough that He doesn't want to leave you that way. And He's got these ideas, He's got this vision of who you could be, who He has created you to be. And He can get you there. But you have to choose to walk in His footsteps. You have to choose to let Him shape you and mold you. And that's what we're going to be talking about all this year here at First Baptist Church. What does the process of growth look like? We know we can't do it without the power of God, but what, what is our part in that process? And as, as a church staff, we, we talked it over and we came up with three steps that we think we as a church need to offer you that will help you get there. And that's what we'll be talking about this year. Let me run through those three steps before we get into the sermon today. So this is the pre-sermon, all right? So first of all, to grow, you have to connect with God through worship. Anytime in the Scripture someone met God face-to-face, anytime they experienced His presence, they walked away changed. We have to connect with God in order to change, in order to be transformed. Secondly, we have to grow in our Christ-like qualities. Jesus is the person we want to become. And we grow in the qualities of Christ the longer we spend time with Him. Later this year, we'll talk about what those qualities are and how we can grow in them. And then third, we, we reach others with His love. As we reach out into others' lives, 
as we care for others in the name of Christ, it changes us and them. And we want to become a church where these three things are happening all the time, where worship is, is genuine and authentic, where you constantly see people growing and becoming someone new, and even more importantly, you see new people constantly coming to know Christ because we're reaching them with His love. We want to become a church where people are becoming disciples who make disciples. That's our vision. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, if you would. Psalm chapter 1. We're going to continue our series right now. We're talking about that first of those three steps, connecting with God in worship. Last week we talked about how to sing in church and why singing is important, but today we're going to talk about why Worship is something that shouldn't just happen on Sunday mornings, and it isn't just something that involves uh, congregational singing and listening to a sermon. Researchers have done a lot of study lately about the subject of happiness and how people become happy and what keeps us happy. And you can go online, you can read a lot of interesting findings on that subject, some of them surprising. For instance, researchers have found, and and there's a a peer-reviewed study that shows that one of the main things that can make us happier is getting more sleep. Not during the sermon, by the way, but getting more sleep. And, and they've actually found, they've, they've quantified it, if you got one hour more of sleep per night, you would actually be happier than you would if you got $60,000 more per year in income, which is kind of fascinating. And, and I've always said, when I read that, I, I just thought, you know, if they're wanting to redo that study and, and just double confirm, I'll volunteer to be in the $60,000 group just because I care about science and humanity, but just want to put that out there. But there are people I've known in my life and in my ministry who had a joy about them, a happiness, a constant sense that they were above the circumstances of this world. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just because they were Christians, because many Christians, most Christians I know, aren't like this. Most Christians I know, kind of their happiness goes up and down with the, with the seasons and with their circumstances. And it wasn't people who were older than me or younger than me. People, they came from both categories. It wasn't people who had a lot of money or a little. It wasn't people who were of a certain race or a certain social strata or a certain education level. But they were people who had a joy about them that the world couldn't seem to take away. And they were magnetic. They drew you in. Some of them were extroverted. Some of them were more private in nature. Their personality wasn't a factor. And the reason I've chosen Psalm 1 is because Psalm 1 talks about these people and it talks about what makes them that kind of joyful person. So if you want to experience that kind of joy, you want to know how to connect to God daily, this is what the psalm is about. Let's read together Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the Psalms begins this way, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." What's the first word of Psalm 1? You remember? You still have it open? Blessed. Blessed. Now, blessed, we say, bless you when someone sneezes. We say, oh, I'm feeling blessed. But what does that really mean? It literally means happy. Happy is the one who walks with the Lord, doesn't walk in the ways of the wicked, but walks in the ways of the Lord. It it talks about these people, these happy few people, in, in terms of three characteristics. Number one, they have stability. 
It says they are like a tree planted by streams of water. You remember when we had a drought a few years ago? I was living in Houston at the time. You don't think of Houston as being a really wooded city, but it is. There are thousands and thousands of trees in the city. And that, that summer and that preceding fall, that following fall, there were all these dead trees that the city had to clear. It cost them tens of thousands of dollars. And yet, a tree that's planted by a stream, doesn't, it's not affected by drought. It's not affected by flood. Trees that are planted by streams of water have a constant source of life. And that's these people. They have stability. Their life goes up and down just like yours and mine. They experience sorrow. They experience pain, frustration. It's all the same. But they are not defeated by those things. Yes, they shed tears. Yes, they get sad sometimes. But their overwhelming emotion and sense of life is joy. They have stability. Sound good? They also have fruitfulness. That's another characteristic. It says that they, they uh, bear fruit in season. And we all know what that's like if you've, if you've got a fruit tree in your backyard. You've got a, an orange tree or a lemon tree or a pear tree or, or a peach. It, it bears fruit sometimes, but not most of the time. But these people bear fruit all the time. Not literal fruit. I don't know anybody that's got lemons hanging off their extremities. I'm talking about the way the Bible uses the word fruitfulness. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. If you've got the Holy Spirit in your life, there's evidence of that. And the evidence, the fruit of it, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things can only be produced in a human life on a consistent basis through the power of the Spirit. If you tried to be that kind of person, tried to uh, emblemize or tried to, tried to show those characteristics, those nine characteristics on your own, you'd fail. But if the Spirit is in you, those things show. Just like, just like a healthy orange tree produces oranges, a healthy follower of Christ produces those qualities. These people are fruitful. You know something else about fruit? A fruit tree doesn't produce fruit for its own benefit. I have never seen a fruit tree eating its own fruit, not once. If I ever saw it, I would freak out. Fruit is produced for the benefit of others. That's why if you've got a neighbor with a fruit tree, they're probably bringing you a, a plastic sack of peaches sometime and say, hey, help us out with these. People who are happy, who are blessed, who are fruitful, they bless people around them. They're the kinds of people you want to have as friends because they make you better. And if you have one of these people as your friend, you want to spend time around them because they just make your life happier. They're fruitful, they're stable, but then they also have success. This is the third thing it says. Whatever he does prospers. Whatever they do prospers. That does not mean, by the way, that if you're blessed by God, everything you want will come true. It doesn't mean that you'll never experience failure and frustrations. You have to interpret Scripture according to Scripture. And when you read the, the, the entirety of God's Word, you see that God's best servants experienced failure. They experienced frustration. So that's not what this means. What it does mean, I think, is these are people who put their best efforts towards the things of God instead of their own ideas. And whereas the rest of us are, are struggling and beating our heads against the wall trying to make our will be done on earth. Their whole mantra is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what their efforts are put towards. That's what their money goes towards. That's what their daydreams are about. And so they experience success because God is on their side accomplishing the things that, that He's put into their hearts to dream. And they make a difference in the world. And at the end of their days, people say, my goodness, such a life. 
Maybe they're not the president of something or the CEO of something, but they affect life. They make the world a better place. They have success. Now, what, what is it that sets these people apart? What is it that makes them so stable and so fruitful and so successful? Verse 2 tells us, their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on it day and night. It's as simple as that. The difference is not just that they're believers in God, not that they go to church, that's important, but that's not it. Not that they read the Scriptures, that's great, but that's not it either. They meditate on the Word of God. So the rest of my time with you, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk about what is meditation. We're going to talk about how it's actually done because we want to become these happy people. And then I'm going to give you a challenge. And I don't usually say this. It's really, it, it really makes no difference to my ego whatsoever whether you do this or not. But I would suggest that you take that bulletin and flip it over and, and write down a few notes because I'm going to give you a challenge at the end and you're going to want to know how to do the challenge. So we're going to talk about how to meditate on the Word of God, how to become the happy people that are mentioned in Psalm 1, connecting with God daily. So first of all, what is meditation? When I say meditation... A lot of people probably picture a guy in a loincloth sitting up on a mountainside somewhere in a lotus position chanting, right? I mean, that's, that's the image of meditation we have these days thanks to be the Beatles and other celebrities who've gotten into uh, Eastern Hinduis, Hinduism and, and Buddhism-inspired meditation. That is, that is the vision of meditation that comes from Eastern religions. But that's not what biblical meditation is. What is meditation? Meditation, simply stated, is thinking deeply about something. Anytime you think deeply about something, you're preoccupied with something, you shut out everything else, and you're just, you're just dwelling on a certain thought, you're meditating. In fact, some of you are meditating right now. And you're not hearing a word I'm saying. You're meditating on something. Meditating is to slow down, to focus deeply, to take apart the Word of God and to run it through in your mind and, and to think about what it really means and how it impacts your life. And we rarely do this. In fact, I dare say there are a lot of people in this room that never do this, even though most of the people in this room probably do read the Bible on a regular basis. We rarely meditate. Let me give you an illustration, a couple, in fact. The first one is going to be a, a math problem. And I, I know I, you were promised there would be no math in this sermon, but... Um, just forgive me for this. This has a purpose. So you ready for this? So you have a bat and a ball that together cost $110. The bat costs $100 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Tell your neighbor the answer. Tell, you, tell them what you think. I don't hear voices. Are you abstaining from the math? How many of you think it's $10? Raise your hand. $10 is the answer. Okay, that's what I said too. Wrong. That's not it. The answer is $5, okay? Because $110, if the bat is $100 more than the ball, then the bat is 105 and the ball is 5. And the problem is not that we're bad at math. Okay, I'm bad at math. But the problem is not that we don't know how to add. It's that we didn't slow down. We heard 100, we heard 10. We, oh, I got the answer right there. If you slow down, you get it. And that's the way it is with the Word of God. Many of you read the Bible daily. Maybe you, have a, a, maybe you read a chapter a day. Maybe you have one of these devotional books that gives you a little section of Scripture to read. Maybe you're really ambitious like I've been in the past and you read the whole Bible in a year and so you've got three or four chapters a day. And I bet if you're like me, your whole goal every time you open that book is, okay, I've got to read this, I've got to get it done, and then I can go on with my day. 
And there's no time to sit and soak in it. There's no time to mull it over in your head. You have to slow down to meditate. You have to give it time. You might be sitting there saying, well, how long do I have to meditate on God's Word? How long do I have to give to the reading of God's Word? Well, think about this for a moment. Donald Whitney, Christian author, said that meditating on God's Word is like making tea. Anybody here ever make tea? You know, the funny thing is, we've managed to speed up almost everything in society, but we've never managed to speed up how to make tea. Whether you, whether you boil the water in a teapot or in a microwave, the same difference. You put that tea bag in that hot water and you have to wait. Same amount of time. And the thing is, if you're from where I'm from, where they like really strong tea, you have to wait a long time. The longer you let it sit, the more the water changes. So the question is not how long should you meditate on God's Word. The question is how much do you want to change? The question is how much do you want to become the character of Christ? Because the more time you spend in the Word, the more you will see yourself changed. So that's what meditation is. It's slowing down and taking time with the Word of God individually. And you can do this. No matter your education level, you can do this. Now, how is it done? What does it mean literally to meditate? It's not just to read it slowly. Basically, there's three steps to meditation. First, you pray. You pray for understanding because we're natural people. We're, we come in with our own human nature, and this is spiritual truth. And natural people can't apprehend spiritual truth without having some kind of supernatural help. So you pray for understanding. Secondly, you ask yourself the question, what does this mean? Determine what the passage means. And when I say that, please understand, that takes some work. That takes some thought. Because the Bible wasn't written in 21st century America. It was written in Greek and Hebrew 2,000 years ago and more. It was written to people very different than us. You have to take some time. You have to do your work. Put thought into it. You know, I find it helpful if I'm reading a story in Scripture, if I really want to get something out of that story, especially if it's one I've heard before. Put myself in the scene. Pretend it's a movie and, and picture it in my mind. What did that character look like? What, what, what did this uh, event look like when it occurred? If, if I'm reading one of the teaching passages in the Bible, I find it helpful to paraphrase it. You know, take out a sheet of paper and write it down in my own words. That helps me mull it over. Or, here's another way to meditate. Memorize it. You know, the word meditate literally means to mutter. So you picture a guy sitting there and repeating the verse over and over in his head or even with his mouth moving, and that's a process of learning it and, and apprehending it. What do we say when someone memorizes something? We say, oh, you know that by heart. So you find out what it means, and then the third step is determine how the passage impacts your life. Essentially, you say, okay, now I know what it means. Now, what would it look like if I started obeying this? What would it look like if I made this real in my life? What kind of changes would I have to make in order to conform perfectly to this truth? By the way, let me give you a warning before we jump ahead to that. You can't skip over step two. You can't just open the Bible, and this is the mistake a lot of Christians, especially young Christians make, is they open the Bible as if it's sort of a secret code, and you can, you can read a verse and go, aha, I know what that means for me. And you can make a lot of big mistakes when you take Scripture out of its context. Let me just give you a quick, kind of a silly example. Imagine a young man is reading the Bible for the first time, and he gets to John 8.32 where it says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
And imagine this young man says to himself, "Uh uh-huh, well, I really, really love Jessica, and she doesn't know yet, so I need to tell her that I love her, and then everything will be great, and I'll be set free from this torment that I am in inside. And so he goes to school the next day, and in front of all his classmates, he tells her of his undying affection, and she vomits immediately. And he walks away saying, the Bible is not true. The Bible has let me down. No, it hasn't. He has taken the Bible out of its context. You go to John 8.32 and you read it in context. And what you read is Jesus saying, I am the truth. If you know me, you have freedom. If you know me and you follow me, I will show you the path to joy and liberty and freedom. That's what he's saying. So know what the Bible actually says first. And then say, If I were to apply this truth to my life, what would it look like? And usually, it has nothing to do with what you're primarily concerned with right now. God's got a whole separate agenda. But that's what it means to meditate on God's Word. So let's let's do this together, okay? Just as an example, let's do one together so you can see how it works. Verses 1 and 2 of the psalm we just read. First of all, let's pray. Lord, open our minds and our hearts so we can understand Your Word. Give us Your guidance so we know how to apply it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to do this fast, just as an example. You would do this slower, but verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one who does not walk and who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers, but whose delight is in the law, is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. I'm not sure why uh, the one on the screen that I gave them to put is different than the one in my Bible. That's okay. It's, it's all God's Word. What does that verse say? What does that passage say? Essentially, you can summarize it this way. There's two ways to live. You can go your own way. You can follow the path of the rest of the world and and conventional wisdom. Or you you can read God's Word and apply your life to it and seek to conform your life to what God says. There's two different paths. And the path that follows God's Word leads to joy and the path that that, that the world sets for us leads to destruction. It's as simple as that. That's a pretty... Pretty basic truth. Now, the third step, how does that impact our lives? Any number of ways. And, and you could do it, for instance, you could focus on the word delight. His delight is on the law of the Lord. And you could say to yourself, you know, if I'm honest, I don't delight in God's word. I read it because I feel like I'm supposed to. I go to church because I think it looks good, but I don't, I don't really delight in God's word. And you can pray, Lord, change my tastes. Here you've given me this, this book that is a never-ending feast, and I don't even have a taste for it. So teach me to hunger for your word. And teach me to get a little discontented with the stuff I've been eating before, the stuff that's been consuming my life and making me sick. Teach me to hunger for what gives me life. Some of us really need to pray that, and God will answer that prayer. Or you could look at this passage and say, you know, there's a lot of parts of my life that where, where honestly, I'm, I'm following the path of the world. Now, over here in these other areas of my life, I'm, I'm following the path of the Lord as best I can. But over here, I really haven't started conforming my life to Him. And just confess those before the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you still accept me even though I'm this way. And just help me to grow. Help me to, help me to grow closer to you in these areas. That's a very fruitful time. Or... This could be a time of worship and and thanksgiving. You could say, I remember the point in my life where I made the decision 
that I was going to follow God's path. And it hasn't been perfect ever since then, but I can see all the blessings that God has given me ever since I decided I want to do things His way instead of my way. And that can be a time of worship and thanksgiving. You can take this any number of ways. There's one meaning of every scriptural text, but any number of ways that we can impact our lives with it and meditate upon it and change our lives. So that's how it's done. Now here's the challenge. This week, I'm challenging you to meditate on Scripture every day. This week, I'm challenging you to take time to meditate on God's Word once a day, whether that's early in the morning or late at night or lunchtime or turn off the TV at night and, and for goodness sakes, don't watch The Bachelor, but do this instead. Whatever works for you. And, And you may say, well, I already read the Word of God. That's great. Whatever you're already doing to read the Bible, don't quit. I'm just asking you to spend a little longer in it to find some truth every day that you can meditate on in these, in these ways we've talked about. And if you don't read the Bible at all, you don't have a, a, a daily pattern of Bible reading, it's very, very simple. Just take a Bible. You can get it free on your smartphone and open up to Matthew 1 and start reading. And stop when you find something that speaks to you. And that's our challenge. That is what will change our lives as we connect with God daily. I would love to know what it's like to be part of a church where every single member authentically connects with God every day. And they don't show up on Sundays and just say, okay, feed me. It's my, it's my time to fill up. No, they come here already full. And they come here and praise God from an authentic heart and then go out into the world with a life that's so distinctive because they've encountered God that morning or the, the night before that people can't help but notice. In your, in your bulletin where you've possibly been taking notes, there's a, there's a note from me asking you to pray for the whole church this week. And, and the prayer is this, that all of us this week would encounter God every day. Think about what First Baptist Church could be if we became a church where the people encounter God on their own every single day. Back in World War I, there was a French soldier named Emile Calais who was wounded as he was recovering in the hospital, um, met one of his nurses, a Scotch-Irish young woman. Uh, they fell in love and got married. After the war, they moved to his hometown in France. Um, and although his wife was a devoutly Christian young woman, he himself came from one of, those, one of those French families that's very, very secular and very, very opposed to organized religion. And he told her, listen, I know you're a Christian and that's fine. You believe what you want, but don't bring any Bibles into our house. Now, Emile Calais was, was a very, very intellectually curious person. He was highly intelligent, and he sought truth wherever he went. He, he loved to read and to study. He was in the university at the time, and so he kept a notebook in his, in his breast pocket, and he called it, uh, or, or, to him it was his most precious possession because he was seeking what he called the book that would understand me. So his idea was every time I read something that I think is insightful, I'll write it in my book. And someday when I'm done studying, I'll sit down and I'll read through all the quotations and life will begin to make sense. Remember, this is a young man that's been through World War I, the cruelest, most destructive uh, war in terms of proportionality the, the world has ever seen. He's seen the horrors of humanity. He wants to make sense of life and he thinks it's there in, in secular learning. And so he, he kept these notes all through his university career. And finally, at the end, he sat down underneath a tree and he pulled out his notebook and he began to read, thinking, now I will get this revelation and life will make sense. But it didn't happen. He was so disappointed. This book that he'd written didn't really understand him at all. It didn't speak to him anything but just reminders of the times he learned those things. 
Meanwhile, at the very same time that Emil was experiencing his, his own disenchantment, his wife was pushing their baby through the streets of that French village, and she was still unfamiliar with it. She'd stayed mostly at home, and so she got lost. And as she walked, she stumbled into an old French Huguenot church, and she walked in, intending only to ask the minister for directions back home, but instead, in the course of the conversation, she found herself asking, do you have a Bible in French that you'll let me have? And he did. And she thought to herself, well, Emil won't like this, so I'll get home real quickly and I'll hide it from him. But when she got home, he had gotten home early and he was already there waiting for her. And she began to apologize for bringing it home. I know you said you didn't want one of these in the house. And he said, is that a Bible? Can I see it? And so she handed it over. And he opened the Bible. And it happened to open to Matthew 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with the Beatitudes. We all know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, and those who mourn, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And he read, and he kept on reading. And this, this book spoke to him like nothing he'd ever seen before. A book that, that showed a God who was real, who loved us just the way we were, who understood the sorrow and the inhumanity of this life and who came into this hum- inhumanity to rescue us. And Emil Calais gave his life to Jesus Christ unexpectedly. Became a believer in Jesus. Later taught in America at Princeton, at University of Pennsylvania, two Ivy League colleges. Became a speaker and author prolific in his writing. Let me tell you what's not the point of that story. It's a true story, by the way. I'm not saying that if you read the Bible, you'll be transformed. That's not the truth. Because there have been many, many, many people who've read this book from cover to cover and walked away unchanged. The Bible is not a book of magic. We have natural minds. I said it earlier. We're just human. God has put put spiritual truth into His book. We can't understand that truth unless our minds are transformed and renewed. And what Emil read that day was not what he expected. It was not a list of musty, old, ridiculous fables and archaic commandments. It wasn't a book of rules. It wasn't a book of religion. It was a story about a God who saw a world that was destined for destruction and deserved it and came in the form of a man named Jesus who lived a perfect life, the life you and I should have lived but couldn't, and died the death that we deserved to die, and He didn't. Died that death on our, in our place and rose again the third day. So that anyone who believes in Him, acknowledges their sin and believes in His power to save and His grace and His willingness, they walk through a door. And through that door is relationship with Him. And through that door is understanding of the Word of God. And through that door is transformation and new birth and new life and never, ever, ever being lost again. And that's what he experienced that day. And that's what we experience through Jesus Christ. It's not about knowing things. It's not about uh, having the Bible memorized or or being able to win a a game of Bible trivia. It's about a relationship with a God who, who... went to the most extreme lengths possible to make that relationship a reality. And so every day we have this opportunity to come into His presence and experience that, that transforming relationship. Isn't it amazing? Here we are, these people who are so messed up, so far from perfect, 
And God has every right to throw us on the roof, and He doesn't. Instead, He makes a way. So this week, take advantage of that opportunity. The water's hot. Dive in and be transformed.